All right, week three. If you got your Bibles, open them up to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to be in verses 1 through 12. So get your Bibles open and let's read that together. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Let's just stop there. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ." For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you... Are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Excuse me. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Peter and for your Holy Spirit um, inspiring him to write this letter. And that, Father, we have it even now for us to read and to learn from and to apply to our lives And it's my prayer this morning, Father, that you would take these words and apply them in a way that it would change us, it would uh, motivate us, it would remind us of just what you've done for us through your son, Jesus Christ, and that our response to that would be one of wanting to really grow and change and increase in our Christ-likeness with your Holy Spirit's help. Thank you for these men. Thank you for their willingness to be here. I pray that you would take all the things that have happened this last part of the week and even maybe this morning that are distracting us, disturbing us, and may we just set those aside for a little while and listen to what you have to say to us. And we pray all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so we have been talking about calling, and that's the name of this whole series, and we've talked about Um, how we've been called by God. And this morning, we're going to talk about our calling out of darkness. And that sounds kind of depressing, but it ought to be encouraging because if you're in Christ, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been called out of something into something else. And we'll see in just a second that we've been called out of darkness into, as we read, marvelous light. So, 1 Peter 2.9 says, you are a chosen race, you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation. You're a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous, marvelous light. Now, think about this verse because you're going to get to discuss it during your discussion time. There's four different descriptors here. 
chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for his own possession. Those four things are true of you if you're in Christ. And sometimes we look at that and we're, okay, um, not sure what it means, not sure what the impact is. Um, I don't know that I feel like a royal priesthood. I kind of get that I'm a chosen race. Um, don't know that I always live that way. Holy nation, I know he's not talking about this nation, so he's got to be talking about the church. And we're a people for his own possession. We belong to him. That's the whole week one we talked about. You have been called by God. Uh, you have been chosen by God. So what should the reaction be? What should it do for us? And in this case, you have been called, called by God, and you've been called out of darkness. Now, some of you have um, better testimonies than others. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, yours is more dramatic. It really doesn't mean you have a better testimony because if you're in Christ, you have a great testimony. Um, I was seven years old when I accepted Christ and hadn't done a whole lot. Hadn't been on drugs, hadn't had illicit sex, hadn't, you know, hadn't done much. I probably lied. Well, I know I lied. Um, I may have lusted. I'm not sure I knew what lust was at that point at seven, but I hadn't done much. So my, my testimony was not very dramatic. Yours may be more dramatic if you came to faith in Christ, but regardless of how you came to faith in Christ or when you came to faith in Christ or what your life looked like before you came to faith in Christ, you have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that's going to be the emphasis in these 12 verses. There's a change that has taken place. Now, it doesn't always show in our lives, and people who know you may not recognize the change, and we may not even recognize the change at times, but we have to realize, and what Peter's trying to tell these people is, you have been changed. You were in darkness, now you're in light. And the reason he's trying to drive that point home to them and to us is that he's really trying to say, live like it. Let that reality sink into your brain so that you start living like what you are. Verse 3 of chapter 1, you've been born again to a living hope. You've been born again. You've been made new. You're a new creature. You have a new nature. He says, your soul has been purified. Again, back in chapter 1. Something dramatic has happened in your life, and you've been born again to what? To a living and abiding Word of God. The Word of God has changed you. And we're going to see this morning when Peter talks about the Word of God, he's not talking about this book necessarily because at that point in time, this book did not, did not exist, right? They didn't have the canon of Scripture. So his use of the Word of God is really talking about something different. It includes this, and you'll see why in just a minute, but we got to figure out what that really means. But he's talking about a change. Verse 10 of chapter 2, you were once not a people, but now you were God's people. In other words, these are people who used to be pagans. Uh, there were probably some Jews in the audience to whom he's writing, converted to Christianity, but most of them are probably Gentiles and they're former pagans, and they didn't used to be a group. They didn't used to have anything in common other than the fact that they were pagan and Gentiles. Now they're God's people. They're part of the body of Christ. You were once not a people, now you are. Once you had not received mercy, now you have. They're different. They're unique. And, and their problem, just like our problem is, you, you have been chosen by God. You've been born again to a living hope. You have a new nature. You have the Holy Spirit living within you. 
But, but we have to wrestle with the fact that sometimes we feel like we're just like everybody else. We're just like the rest of the world. We struggle with the same things. We have the same issues, the same problems. And yet we have to continually remind ourselves that, no, 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 I am part of God's people. I am God's son. I am a son of God. And I have the Holy Spirit of God living within me. And I have received mercy from God. And I'm no longer under condemnation. We have to think about that. We need to dwell on that. And that's why he's spending so much time telling these people about that. Don't forget who you are. And it's easy to forget who you are when things are not going well, right? Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, Just not even five minutes ago, I got a phone call. My son, many of you know, is in the Marines. He's in um, Okinawa, Japan. Right before he got sent to Okinawa, Japan, he called me. He said, Dad, I'm going to buy a dog. And I said, don't buy a dog. But he's like me. He loves dogs. And I said, don't buy a dog. He was in San Diego. And he goes, he goes, yeah, but I, I want a dog, Dad. I really want a dog. I want a big dog. I said, don't buy a dog. Don't buy a big dog. Just don't buy a dog. I said, you could end up anywhere. And here's what I know. If he ends up anywhere, guess who gets another dog? <laughs> me. And I don't want a dog. I don't want a big dog. So three months ago, they, he got orders to go to Okinawa. And they drive from San Diego in his truck with his wife. They show up at my home to visit us before they leave. And guess who he has with him? His dog. And uh, I said, why, why? And I'm thinking, well, he's got the dog because he can't leave him in the apartment. So, you know, I said, well, what's, what's with the dog? And his wife goes, did you not tell him? <laughs> and he goes, Dad, um, we thought the dog was going to get to fly free on, military, on a military flight, but it didn't work out. And and it's going to cost us $1,800 to ship this dog. And so I'm trying to work out other plans. Could he stay with you? She stay with you. And I said, like, for how long? And he goes, oh, just a couple of weeks. That was three months ago. <laughs> this dog is a German Shepherd mix. It's a rescue dog. It's the dumbest dog I've ever met in my life. <laughs> it's chewed everything in my house. It's, it's crapped everywhere in my house. Um, it's terrorized my dog, which is 10 years old and about to have a coronary. Um, it's chewed up $150 pair of headphones. It's, it's just, I, I've, I said, I'm going to ship you the dog in pieces and you can reassemble it, but I'm getting rid of this dog. Here's the point. He was arranging the shipment of this dog, never worked out. Okay. Fell, fell apart. So at the last minute we had to ship this dog. So this last Tuesday, we got it all worked out. Yesterday I went to the airport at four o'clock in the morning to ship this dog, met the vet, and you have to use these special vets that are approved to ship internationally, drop off the dog. I'm like high-fiving myself in the car because I'm like, I finally got rid of this dog. It cost me close to $3,000, um, <laughs> which I'll probably never see knowing my son. And, but I'm happy. I got rid of the dog. I can't wait to go home and tell my wife the dog's gone. It's like, you know, it's like being an empty nester all over again. And then my son texts me just as I get in the car, and I'm all excited. And he goes, Dad, I just looked at the paperwork, and the dog, um, it's going to Tokyo, not Okinawa. And I'm on a different island. I'm in Okinawa. And I, I went, you're kidding me. So I go back in and talk to the lady, and I said, what, what's up with this? She goes, well, they don't fly to Okinawa. I said, well, why don't you tell me that? I just paid you $3,000 to ship my dog, and you've shipped him to the wrong island. And, and she said, well, I, I have a service that can get him from Tokyo to Okinawa. I said, 
I don't even care. Just do it. She called me not five minutes ago, right before I got up here, and she said, we have a problem. Um, I can't find anybody to get your dog from Tokyo to Okinawa. I'm like, you're, you're kidding me. She goes, your, your son, can your son go get him? I said, my son's a Marine. He can't just leave and fly to Tokyo and pick up a dog. And she goes, well, I don't know what we're going to do. Now, why am I telling you that story? Because I want to vent is part of the problem. <laughs> and it's to keep me from cussing out my son. But um, we are God's people, and we are... Guys, we live in a world where we're just as much susceptible to problems as anybody else, right? Now, that's not a huge problem in the grand scheme of things, although I really do want my $3,000 back. Um, it's a problem, and, and we face problems, and we face issues just like everybody else, and it's real easy for me to forget that I am a son of God, and I am called out of darkness into his marvelous light, and even though... Those kinds of things happen in my life on a regular occasion, sometimes more often than I would like, and I wonder, God, what are you doing? Sometimes I have to realize that, and I don't want this to sound silly or sacrilegious, and you may have greater issues going on, but I truly believe much of this is spiritual warfare. It's a dog, Ken. Get over it. No. Anything that will distract me from trusting God for my daily provision is spiritual warfare. Am I saying that Satan is the one who's delaying my, that dog getting there? I, I don't have a clue how Satan works, and I really don't want to know. All I know is that anything in my life that prevents me from trusting God or beginning to doubt God is spiritual warfare. And so we live in this world. We're God's people, and we got to keep reminding ourselves. And so what does he tell them in chapter 2? Here's what he says. So, transition, like he says, therefore... Now he says, so as a result, because you're God's children, put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, envy, slander. Notice all of those are relational issues, right? They have something to do with somebody else. It's hard to have malice unless somebody else is involved. I had malice yesterday morning at 4 o'clock with this vet because she had dropped the ball, hadn't been honest with me, hadn't told me everything. You can't deceive unless there's somebody to deceive. All of these are relational. They have to do with your relationship with other people. And then he says, not only put away those things like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Interesting statement, grow up into salvation. Well, I'm already saved. Well, just like we said last week, you are continually being saved. You are grasping, hopefully, more and more the reality and the import of your salvation, what you were saved from, what you're being saved to. So he says, grow up in your salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So he's given us two commands here, two commands, put away. Here's what that means. It's a very simple term in the Greek, and it just means put off. Lay it aside. Cast it off. It's like you've had it in a coat and you take it off and you, th you throw it aside. He says, put away those things, those, those things that damage relationships, those things that are from your old way of life. I love this from Romans chapter 13. Paul says this, the night is almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here, the return of the Lord, right? That's our hope. That's the goal. So 
Same word, remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes. You ever worked out in the yard and you're just filthy and, and you just, you can't wait to take a shower, take off those dirty clothes and put on new clothes? You don't want to stay that way, right? You stink, nobody wants to be around you. That's really the picture here. Take off those old clothes, those dirty deeds, put on the shining armor of right living because we belong to the day we must live decent lives for all to see. This is the key and it's going to be the key through these verses. You live in a context. You live in a community. You, you work in an environment where there are other people both saved and lost, probably more lost than saved. And so you have to keep that in mind. Live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the darkness of wild parties, drunkenness, sexual promiscuity, immoral living, quarreling, jealousy. Instead, what? Clothe yourself, put on... Take one thing off, put the other thing on with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. So here's Paul saying the very same thing that Peter's saying in chapter 2 of 1 Peter. I'm to cast off one thing and put on a new thing. I love this from the message in Colossians 3. Paul says, if you're serious about living this new resurrection life, right? we are resurrected in the sense that we have a new nature, a new soul. Our bodies are not yet resurrected, but we are resurrected in the sense that we have been made new. He says, with that in mind, act like it. If you've been resurrected because of Jesus Christ, act like it. Pursue the things over which Christ presides. Don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorbed with the things right in front of you. Look up and be alert to what is going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from his perspective. I love the way he paraphrases it because it's, it's this picture of you just kind of walking with your head down, dealing with all, just the stuff that's around you. Just like yesterday, you know, when I left the airport and drove home, I was kind of in a funk and I'm like, I, you know, it's kind of a love-hate. I, I love that we got rid of the dog, but he's not really gone and I don't know where he's going to be and he could end up dying in a crate in a warehouse somewhere and my son's going to be upset and I've lost $3,000 and I'm just kind of, I got my head down looking at the ground and it's like, what's he saying? Get your eyes up. What's God doing? What's Christ doing? What's happening in this world? You will live through this. You will survive this. The dog may not, but you will survive this. There are greater things going on in this world. Isn't it easy to, to with all the stuff going on with the election and the race relations in the world today, it's so easy to to walk with your head down or staring at the tube and listen to the internet or whatever you're doing and, and just get so down. And he says, pick up your eyes, look at Christ. What is he doing? See, it's all about perspective. It's all about looking at the right thing, thinking about the right thing. He goes on in chapter three of Colossians. That means killing off everything connected with that way of death, your old life, sexual promiscuity, impurity, lust, doing whatever you feel like whenever you feel like it, grabbing whatever attracts your fancy. That's a life shaped by things and feelings instead of by God. And that, guys, is the way of the world. It's living according to feelings, passions, appetites, instead of the way God wants us to live according to his will, his desires for us. We got to get our eyes up. We got to start looking at the right thing. It's because of this kind of thing that God is about to explode in anger. It wasn't long ago that you were doing all that stuff and not knowing any better, but you know better now, so make sure it's all gone for good. Bad temper, irritability, 
meanness, profanity, dirty talk. That was my morning yesterday. Anger, frustration, irritability. When this woman called me, I caught myself just getting frustrated and angry. And I got to get up and teach. You know, what bad timing. Could you have called like an hour later? But guys, this is, this is, this is where this gets really in-your-face, practical, down-and-dirty, Monday-morning reality, rubber hits the road, live it, don't just talk it. we got to put off and put on. we got to do something. So the second command, one is to put off, the second one is long for. This is a really interesting one. In the Greek, it's the word epitheo, and it means to earnestly desire to greatly long after. Okay? Now, to track with me on this one, because this is important. He says... This is the same word used in 2 Corinthians by Paul. We grow weary in our present bodies, these earthly bodies. We long, same word, we earnestly desire, greatly long after, to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. And I, and I use this illustration all the time. The older you get, the more you're going to long for that. When my body won't hurt, when I won't be sick anymore, when I won't have to work out so hard to try to make this thing last a few years longer, you long for that day. And he uses the same term in 1 Peter, long for it, long for the pure spiritual milk. What's he talking about? Now, I've always read that, and I think pure spiritual milk, that means the Bible. But like I said, they didn't have the Bible at this point in time. We do now. And I think it does apply to the Bible, but here's what he meant. He says, we are to crave the word of God like a baby craves its mother's milk. And I started thinking about this past week. What does that mean? What does that look like? It's been a long time since any of my kids were babies, but I have two grandchildren. One is nine months and one is a year and a half. And, and I started thinking about what does it mean for a baby to crave its mother's milk? Well, first of all, it's not an intellectual craving, right? It's not like they're sitting there going, I wonder what I'd like to eat today. I think steak, mother's milk. I think it'd be better if I drank mother's milk because I'm not ready for... No, they just crave milk. They crave it. They cry for it. They whine about it. They got to have it. And you know when they got to have it, right? Because they're letting you know. That's what this word means. We're to crave it. He doesn't understand what the milk's doing for him, he or she. They just crave it. They don't fully comprehend the nutrients involved and the process that went into making the milk and the mother's breast. It's just like, I got to have, whatever that is, I got to have it. And I got to have it now. And if you don't let me have it now, you're going to rue the day. It's a deep, deep longing and desire. It's instinctive, right? It just happens. Well, here's, here's what he's really telling you and me is that this desire for, this longing for the pure spiritual milk is instinctive. It comes with your new nature. And if you don't have it, there's something wrong. There's something abnormal about you not having that desire. A baby that does not crave its mother's milk, there's something wrong. When my uh, daughter's little boy was born, he wouldn't nurse. And it was driving her crazy. And she didn't, is, is it me? Is it? What's wrong with him? Well, ended up, it just, it was a, the little, I don't know what they call the thing, but the little um, thing that's like between your gums and your lip was too big and it was, he couldn't suckle. And so 
took him to a doctor. They cut it, and he was fine. But he wouldn't eat. It wasn't that he didn't want it. It's just he couldn't physically do it. But some of us don't want it. We don't desire it. He says, put off all these things, but then long for the pure spiritual milk. What's he talking about? Well, first of all, it's pure, right? It's sincere. It's unadulterated. It's undefiled. It's pure. It's without deceit. It's something that you can trust and you should want. You know, my, my little uh, grandson doesn't ever have to worry about the quality or the purity of his mother's milk. Well, we don't have to worry about the quality and the purity of this milk. It's, it's something we can take in. But again, what is it? Look at verses 23 and verse 25. It says, your new life, this is back in chapter 1, your new life, this new nature, born again, will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. And that word is the good news that was preached to you. Now, catch this because this is really important. The living word of God, and he goes on and says, that word, that living word of God is the good news that was preached to you, the gospel. So when Peter talks in this passage about the word, the pure spiritual milk, he's talking about the gospel, not this book that we have. Now, again, I'm not discounting this book. I love this book. I read it every day. I care about this book. But you got to understand what this book is, is not your blueprint for living. It's not a roadmap to life. This is the gospel unpacked from beginning to end. The redemptive plan of God for man. So the gospel is that pure spiritual milk. And so we got to continually long for and crave what? The life-changing nature of the gospel. It is what sustains me. Um, I love the phrase, and I think it was Jerry Bridges uh, who died earlier this year. Uh, he kind of coined it, but it's really it comes from the Puritans that we are um, we're to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Say, I grew up thinking the gospel was what was what happened when I came to faith in Christ. I heard the gospel. I accepted the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. But he says, and I agree with him, that I'm to preach the gospel to myself every day because I need to remind myself of the good news of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel? That Jesus Christ died. He came, he died, he rose again. But it's also he's coming again. It's the full scope. It's, it's the return of Christ. It's our resurrection. And I'm to preach, preach that to myself every day, remind myself. I'm to long for that message every day. So when you start getting discouraged, things aren't going well, you get a call from the vet and the dog's somewhere between Chicago and Tokyo, you go, okay, Lord, you're in control. You have a plan for me. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. You will work all this out. You are greater than I am. You have a plan and you preach the gospel. That's what he's talking about. We should crave the gospel. Now, we spend time in this word. Why? Because it reminds me of the gospel. It reminds me of my God. It reminds me who he is. And like I said, the Bible is really the gospel from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation. Here's why. It reveals how man came into being. How do we, how do we get here? The Bible tells me. God created us. It was God's plan. It tells me how we fell from God's good graces. God made me. What happened? Well, sin. Genesis. 
It exposes man's inability to restore his relationship with God. That's most of the rest of the book up until Jesus comes. Man could not get right with God. That's the reason the law was given, to prove to men that you can't live up to the standards that God requires. You can't redeem yourself. You can't make yourself right with God. That's the gospel. And then Jesus shows up as God's solution to man's sin problem. That's the gospel. How we were made, how we got screwed up, how we can't fix the problem, how he sent the solution in the form of his son, that's the gospel from beginning to end. And the greatest part is the book of Revelation, it wraps up pretty well. His son's coming back. He's going to come get us. He's going to return someday to this earth. His feet are going to hit the ground on the Mount of Olives outside Jerusalem, and he's going to restore everything, including creation. That's the gospel. And we got to preach it to ourselves every day. I, I need to long for that message every day. And the worse things are, the more you should long for it. So what does he say? Put off, long for Put off those old things, be sick of them, take them off like dirty clothes, but long for the gospel, the completion of God's plan, that one day he's coming back. And when we do that, when we feed on the gospel like a baby feeds on its mother's milk, we grow. We grow in strength. We grow in confidence. We grow in love for God because of what he's done for us. We grow in peace, even in the midst of storms. We grow. And the Bible, the reason I love reading the Bible is it reminds me of the strength of my God, the weakness of me, and the fact that one day God's going to fix everything. God's going to fix it all. But if I don't think about that, if I don't dwell on that, if I don't long for that message, I will get distracted, discouraged, defeated. And so he's telling these people, guys, put off and long for See, our salvation, he says, grow up in your salvation because our salvation, as we've said before, is progressive. It's ongoing. It, it's to result in further growth. It, it, one of the things that I know God is disappointed in, I get disappointed in, is when I see men who've come to faith in Christ at some point in their life and they've never grown in their faith. They're no more mature now at 40, 50 than they were at 14 or 24. That is not how God designed this to work. We're to grow up in our salvation. We're to increase. We're not to be static. We're to be active in our faith. But you've got to long for it. Do you want to grow? Do you want to increase in your knowledge of God's word, in your relationship with Jesus Christ? He says in verse 18 of chapter 3, you must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You must grow. It is natural, it is normal, and when you crave, long for the gospel as revealed in this book, and you want to know more about it, I, I guarantee you will grow. You can't help but grow. My, uh, my little uh, grandson is uh, nine months old, and he, he weighs more than my granddaughter, who's a year and a half. He's in the 98th percentile in both height and weight. I mean, he's huge. And his parents are both fairly small. He loves mother's milk. And now he's loving anything and everything that he can put in his face. He's growing. He's massive. I don't know when it's going to stop, but he's a, if you crave it and you get it, you will grow. And the same thing is true of our salvation in the word of God. And then he says in verse 3, this interesting thing, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Have you tasted the goodness of God? Have you tasted 
the benefits of salvation in Jesus Christ? Do you benefit from the Holy Spirit living within you? If you have, you should want more of it. If you've ever had a really good dessert, you want more. You don't need it. You probably don't have any place to put it, but you can't wait to have more. If you had a good steak, you want more of it. If you've had a good experience, you, you, you want more of it. If you've taken a great vacation, you don't want to go home. You want to stay. You crave more. That's the picture here. An appetite for the things of God. Do you have an appetite for the things of God? When you read the Word, do you want to read more of the Word? Or do you walk away going, God, that was a, just painful. I don't want to do that again. See, as you grow, you want more, just like a baby. And as you feed in the Word, you grow and you crave more and more. Got to have more. This is not enough. I got to have more. And one of the things I love to see is when men start getting in the Word and they start growing. I had a guy, I've told you guys this before, but last year, I'm always you know, challenging you to get in the Word, read the Word. And, and uh, one Sunday, this guy who comes on Thursday night came up and he goes, hey, I'm reading the Bible. And I thought he was being sarcastic because I'm sarcastic. And I went, hey, that's great. Good, good for you. He goes, no, I'm reading the Bible. And I went, oh, good. What are you doing? He goes, I, I, you're always telling us to read the Bible. I just started reading the Bible from Genesis on. He goes, it's, man, it's fascinating. I said, yeah, it is. And, and then a couple weeks later, he goes, I'm, I'm in Ecclesiastes. Man, that's difficult. I said, don't stop. Just keep reading. <laughs> just don't, don't give up. Don't, don't throw in the towel. He's read through the entire Bible, and he started over again. And the, the last time I saw him, he's like, man, this is the best thing I've ever done. And I can't wait to start again. See, that's what this is talking about. Spiritual maturity is natural and normal. But you got to put off some old things, and you got to crave and long for the gospel and its power to change you. So he goes in verse 5, you yourselves are like living stones, you're being built up. Now, this is a corporate message here. He's talking to the group. He's saying, not only are you going to grow individually, you're going to grow collectively, built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're to grow up together, right? This is one of the reasons I love men's ministry. I love seeing men grow together, talking around tables, encouraging one another, holding each other accountable. Because we're to grow together. We're to increase in godliness. Our redemption is to have ramifications, results. And in verses 6 through 8, he's going he's to talk about Jesus, this cornerstone that we are being built on. He says, he's chosen, he's precious, just like we are. And if, if we believe in him, we will not be let down. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, if he is the foundation, your world may get rocked, but you will not fail. You may sin, but you will not lose your salvation because you're built on him. You can trust him, and you will never have any grace. There will never be anybody standing in heaven before Jesus Christ who goes, man, I wish I'd never done this. He never came through for me. He will always come through for you, and he eventually will come through completely when he redeems you body and soul. So he says, those who believe... Our lives are being built upon him. We believe in him. We put our faith and hope in him, and we grow in him. But there are others who stumble over him. 
right? People who don't believe. He says, there, but for those who do not believe, believe in what? The gospel, Jesus Christ, his death on the cross for them. What does he say? They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. What's the word? The gospel. They disobey the gospel, the call. They don't adhere to it. But what's really interesting, he says, as they were destined to do. You know, I taught last night out on the West Campus. And one of the guys came up afterwards and he goes, man, I'm still really struggling about this whole thing about God choosing an election. I don't know if I believe it. I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I, just, I, I, I think we have free will. And I said, man, I, I'm not asking you to believe what I believe. I am asking you to wrestle with it and get into the word and find out what God says about election and choosing. And, but I'm just happy you're wrestling because these are people have been wrestling for this, with this for centuries and there's still debates within the church over it. But wrestle with it. What bothers me is the men who don't give a rip one way or the other. And they're not willing to get in the word. And they don't even have an opinion. At least have an opinion. At least study the word enough to know what you believe. But here he says, these people who stumble over the gospel, who reject the gospel, are destined. That Greek word means they're established, they're ordained, they're appointed to what? To their destiny. To the end. This is a difficult passage, but it goes right along with what we looked at in, in verse 9. You are a chosen race, chosen by God, elect, as he started out in verses 1 to 2 of chapter 1. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him, of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There are those who have been called by God, chosen by God. There are those who have been destined. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time in this, but somebody in the room is going to go, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. That's not fair. That God destines somebody for eternal damnation? See, I think we look at this from the, the wrong direction, from the wrong perspective. Here's reality. Everybody since Adam has been destined to what? Hell, right? All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. The, the penalty for sin is what? Death. Not just physical death, but eternal separation from God. That is the destiny for every person who has ever been born and will be born. Here's, here's what we should dwell on. That God, in his mercy, would choose anybody to escape that. Ought to blow our minds. Because guess what? None of us deserve it. And here's, here's the other issue involved. Are you in Christ because you deserved it? No. Are you better than the person who's destined for something else? No. You were destined for the same fate, but God in his mercy, not based on anything in you, chose you. And that ought to cause you to rejoice and to be amazed and to be humbled and to be blown away at what God has done, that you have been taken out of darkness, which is where every other person on this planet who is not in Christ is in darkness. You've been removed by God and placed into his marvelous light. That's the key to these verses. That's your unique nature. And if it doesn't resonate with you, if that does not get you excited, there's something wrong with you. 
that you don't live where you used to live. You're, you were once not a people. You were lost. You were not of God. You didn't have a relationship with God, and you couldn't do anything about it. And there are countless millions of people in religious organizations and groups all around this planet trying to somehow please their God, and they never will because no man can. You have been called out of darkness. You've received mercy. And as a result, you are chosen. Verses 11 and 12, beloved, I urge you, I plead with you as sojourners, as exiles to what? Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, those unbelievers, honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the, on the day of visitation. See, our actions have consequences. He says, abstain from following your sinful passions. Don't let your sinful desires, your sin nature drive you. Don't give in to the way you used to live. Avoid those influences. And it's hard. I know it's hard because there's so many pressures on us. But guys, we feed the monster, right? We watch shows on TV that feed the monster, and we wonder, God, I wonder why I'm struggling with lust. Well, think about what you watch. Think about what you feed your brain with. Don't feed the monster. It's like a guy we had come and speak to our men's ministry years ago, and he said, man, if you're on a diet, don't, put, don't keep eclairs in the refrigerator. You know, don't keep a box of donuts on your desk. Don't feed the monster. Don't tempt yourself. Don't... Abstain from those things. Put them away. Paul says in Galatians, I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. You want to have victory over your sin nature? Allow the Holy Spirit to guide you and direct you. And I don't know any other way to do it than get into his word because that's where he speaks to you. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. The Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. Every guy in the room understands that, right? You feel it every day. I know what I want to do, but I keep doing what I don't want to do. Romans chapter 7, the words of Paul. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. You've got to do battle with the help of the Holy Spirit, because you're constantly, these two things are constantly fighting each other in you. And you got to abstain from one and you got to put on the other. You got to long for the gospel because they are waging war against your soul. Those sinful desires, that sin nature is out to destroy your soul. It makes us weak and spiritually ineffective. And that's why there are marriages that are struggling. That's why men get into financial difficulties. That's why we end up being bad employees and employers because we have allowed sinful desires to wage war and have victory over us, and we shouldn't. Abstain from those things. Put them aside because you're a holy nation. You've been set apart by God. So he says, conduct yourselves honorably. That just simply means in an excellent way, surpassing, better than. Why? Because you have influences you influence all those around you. That's why your life and the way you live it, your conduct is so important. You can and should do good deeds, even during the bad times, even during difficulties, because, again, your, your conduct has consequences. What you say influences those around you. What you do or don't do influences those around you, especially the lost. How you live influences others, your kids, your wife, your friends, 
your family. So I'll close with this. This is from the Passion Translation. Matthew chapter 5, words of Jesus. Listen to this. Your lives are like salt among the people. But if you like salt become bland, how can your saltiness be restored? Flavorless salt is good for nothing and will be thrown out and trampled on by others. Your lives light up the world. Is that true of you? Does your life light up the world? should be because you have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let others see your light from a distance. For how can you hide a city that stands on a hilltop? And who would light a lamp and then hide it in an obscure place? What's really interesting about that, he says, who would hide it or put it under a basket is how many of your translations say. That word is, is, is a, it has to do with, it's the same word that we read earlier about. They are, those who don't believe, stumble, and are destined. They are put or determined for a certain destiny. Why would you take a light? and determine to put it and hide it, you wouldn't. So we've got to determine, I've got a light shining within me. I'm not going to hide it. I'm going to put it where it can shine for everyone. It's a place where everyone in the house can benefit from its light. So don't hide your light. Let it shine brightly before others so that the commendable things you do will shine as light upon them, and then they will give praise to your Father in heaven. Your conduct has consequences. Your life has influence. So here's, here's your three questions, and this week I'm not going to tell you which one to do first. But discuss some commendable things you could do that could possibly inf- impact the unbelievers in your life. What are some things you could do that would possibly impact them? Secondly, what are some specific things we need to put away that are more associated with our old lives and not with our new life in Christ? And third, look at verse 9 and discuss what you think the, the four descriptions mean when it comes to daily life. Holy priesthood, chosen people. So you probably won't get through all these, and that's perfectly okay. But guys, be specific. Come up with specific things you can do to change the way you live so that you might glorify your God in heaven and influence those around you. Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for them being here. I pray that you would take the table time, use it to their good, your glory, and Father, that you would change us from the inside out through the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would live as who we are, sons of God, chosen, royal priesthood, holy nation, impacting this world by being salt and light agents of change and influence. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.